Uh, we're ready to start this. Welcome everybody to uh, Boxes and Lions Live. This is day two. Uh, we appreciate those of you who showed up last night, daring to show up again today. Um, today, our topic is going to be investment in ESG and very excited about the two guests who I'll introduce in a second. And um, those of you who know me, John Ramsey here knows I'm a little bit cynical and it, it may be cliche to say, not cynical in ESG, cynical <laughs> in nature. And like, I'm Irish for Christ's sake, I can't help it. But uh, you know, it may be cliche to say the younger generation care more about purpose, but when over 70% of US investors are expressing interest in sustainable investing, there's obviously a seed of change there, right? So our two guests today are Paul Bodner and Eric Van Nostrand of BlackRock. And they join us for a discussion on sustainable and social impact investing and the end retail investor. Very now well to done. bios. Very thank, well done. Thank you, Ronan. John. I don't normally read, but uh, mm -hmm. these guys are impressive. No, so well, I'll, I'll start with Paul first. No, seriously, guys, thank, thank you very much for being here. Uh, Paul Bodnar is the global head of BlackRock Sustainable Investing. He was appointed there March 21. Uh, some significant previous roles, managing director and chief strategy officer at Rocky Mountain Institute. Held a number of climate leadership roles in the US government, including a special assistant to the president and senior director for energy and climate change at the National Security Council. Jeez. And played a critical role in the development of the Obama administration climate policies, including the US strategy for the Paris Climate Conference. Now, Eric himself is very impressive too, is head of research for multi-asset strategies and sustainable investments at BlackRock. He's been there since March, 2016. Also some significant previous roles, head of macro research and portfolio strategy, multi-asset strategies and director of multi-asset macroeconomic research and portfolio strategy. And he's a hell of a model American. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well done. Oh my God. Jesus. After that. Guys, can, can, you, can you take the mic for a second? So, yeah. Yeah. You've, you've done a lot of good things with your life too. Right? Thank you. You should not, you know, don't feel embarrassed about Thank your you. accomplishments. Thank you. run a company where we have our own beer. That's yeah. pretty good. Okay. Um, guys. Thanks for joining us. And I thought we'd start with uh, each of you just explaining a bit more about what your roles at BlackRock cover and how did you get into this space, please? I'll, I'll start with you, Paul, please. Hey, thanks. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having us. Uh, I can tell this is going to be fun. Um, <laughs> oh, you have no idea. Well, we'll try to keep it within. We've got you now, boys. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So uh, what does it mean to do sustainable investing at BlackRock? So we're an asset manager. We manage a nine and a half trillion dollar uh, book at the moment. And, and we've decided that, that consistent with our fiduciary duty, sustainability is our new standard for investing. So my job together with Eric and, and many other folks is to help the entire firm implement that view and, and bake it into everything that we do. In other words, we're not building a uh, green rock inside BlackRock. <laughs> We're trying to transform the firm overall and make sure that our conviction around sustainable investing is taken into account in the way that we help clients, uh, in the way that we do risk management, in the way that we interact with investees, you know, the companies that we're shareholders of on behalf of our clients, in the way we speak uh, about public policy and other general issues. So it's all of those things um, and uh, it's, it's a super fun job. Oh, I didn't say. How did I get here? Well, I mean, I've worked I've worked on this issue for more than twenty years in uh, in the financial sector, in government, in in nonprofit. I've I've worked in China on uh, you know projects that reduce emissions. I've worked in Eastern Europe. I've worked in the city in London, et cetera. And um, so this is like this is the job. This is the 
the topic that I've decided to devote my career to. And I've always tried to be in the place where you can do the most interesting and high impact work. And in, in my view, that right now is BlackRock. Excellent. Eric. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. I don't, um, you know, what I'd say up front is I came at this, I think, from maybe the other end of the spectrum as Paul. Uh, before I got involved in sustainable investing, I was part of the traditional macroeconomic investment engine at BlackRock, uh, non-sustainable investing, you might call it. And <laughs> I, I kind of view my, my role in sustainable investing at BlackRock today as, as really emphasizing the fact that that career change of mine isn't a very big one. To illustrate that when we do sustainable investing, we're thinking about the same considerations of risk and return and our fiduciary obligations to our clients that we are on a traditional investing landscape. What I'm focused on is identifying the specific ways in which sustainability, be it climate, be it social and governance considerations, affect outcomes for our investors and making sure that we understand those relationships in the same way that we do traditional portfolios. And I noticed when I was reading your bio, um, Eric, that you actually are a lawyer by training, uh, right? Or if you, I mean, you went to law school. I don't know if you've ever. Practiced this is where John plugs that he too. Is no, no, no. To I'm lawyer. not going to say anything about myself. So the, I'll <laughs> confess the the heavily negotiated phrase on that with my partner, who's an actual lawyer, is is reformed lawyer, which I use. Um, but as a, <laughs> as an investor for mo most of That's my great. career, I've spent a lot of time thinking about you know those policy issues as well and how they interact with this topic area especially. Fantastic. Makes so sense. so I know we're going to get into um, ESG and sustainable investing, but before we go there, we kind of want to just set the stage and particularly when we're looking at climate change, where we are. And I, I kind of asked the question, it's, uh, it's funny, I was reading, not funny, I guess I was reading in Bloomberg yesterday, uh, there, was a, there was an article, uh, New York City's future is very, very wet. And I'm not sure if you guys read that, but let me just read you something that I thought was interesting that leads into the question. And it says, how the city deals with climate change will affect not only the tens of millions of people in this region, but cities worldwide that follow the example. And they call it the chronic worsening of average conditions. Uh, our current world was constructed to manage one kind of average with extremes appropriately measured by their distances from the mean. But the chronic worsening of average conditions means that the extremes are growing ever more distant and ever more dangerous. And I don't normally do uh, homework for podcasts, but I'm knowing really that I was impressed, I know it, it won't happen again, but <laughs> notice now that I knew that I was talking to you guys today and I've been reading your backgrounds, you know, wh where are we with climate change? It, yeah, it, I mean, most of like what I'm Ronan read and most other stuff that you read um, in, the, in the press generally does seem um, awfully uh, depressing and the hill that we have to climb seems so intimidating. Um, can you give us some hope? <laughs> Eric, please, I'm joking, a little bit Paul. of hope. <laughs> in our, in our pre-call, uh, Paul worried me. Sure. Well, well I, I think, you know, <laughs> Paul, why, why don't you do the, the, your story first, and then I'll chime in with the hope. Yeah, yeah, because if you want hope, um, let me give you the other side of the equation first. <laughs> no, uh, Ronan, A, a plus on your homework there. Um, you know, the, the way we, we come at this from the lens of risk, um, and we've said, uh, for a couple of years now, that climate risk is investment risk. And the reason we say that, and mindful of what you've just read us, is that we, we can see that climate risk will reshape the global economy in the decades to come, regardless of whether it's managed successfully or unsuccessfully. 
And uh, you've, you've just given us an example of what it looks like to manage it unsuccessfully, right? To, to have to deal with greater and greater costs associated with the physical damages of climate change on the economy, the economic costs, the costs to companies, the costs to assets, and ultimately the impact of financial portfolios. We have, we have better and better science and better better data to estimate that cost. We know what it looks like. We know um, how different rises in temperature drive that, that those costs up and down. We have better and better granular models that we can zoom in and look at individual city blocks and, and assess their exposure to those risks like, like sea level rise and storm surge. We understand how different communities are exposed to heat, extreme heat or precipitation, drought, flooding, et cetera. So we, on the one hand, if we don't manage these risks, those are the, that's the reality we're looking at. And it's a world that's very different than the world that humans have inhabited for, for, for most of our history. And, and that's happening at an accelerated rate. Um, on the other hand, if we manage this risk successfully, meaning if we reduce greenhouse gas emissions and avoid some of those extreme physical costs, what we need to do to achieve that is to remake the physical asset base of the economy because uh, carbon emissions arise in every sphere of economic activity today. So, uh, so the assets that power the modern economy, right? Power plants, passenger vehicles, trucks, planes, ships, commercial buildings, uh, cement plants, chemical plants, those things we provide services we want, but, but we wanna scrub the carbon out. And that means replacing those assets with zero carbon versions or deeply retrofitting them. And that too will, will be a fundamental remaking of the economy. So either way, if, if, if from our perspective, thinking about our clients and their financial well-being, uh, the world is gonna look very different in a couple decades. And, and navigating the uncertainties of that transition and what cocktail of physical risk and, and then this transition risk our clients face is, is the fundamental dilemma um, uh, that, that, that we face here. And, and you, know, you asked where we are in the story. I think where we are in the story is there's good news and bad news. The good news is that the, the commitment to deal with this problem uh, has never been greater, not just at the political level, across governments, across the world, but also more and more companies <laughs> up and down different supply chains. Not quite. Uh, and financial institutions, banks, asset owners, asset managers, insurers, et cetera. So everybody right. is trying to figure out how to contribute to this uh, and make it a successful management of climate risk. That's good. The bad news is that we are not currently on track to, 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 for success. And we got, uh, if you think about what it would take to meet the most ambitious expression of where we wanna go, which is to hold global warming to 1.5 degrees of warming above pre-industrial levels, that would require an annualized reduction of emissions about 7% between now and 2030 globally, which is around the same as we experienced in 2020 when we put the global economy into an induced coma in, in the process mm -hmm. of dealing with COVID. So that just gives you a stark illustration of the challenge. But again, from our point of view, and I'll, I'll, I'll wrap with this point, um, we've already crossed the temperature above which it's preferable to make this transition than it is to bear the cost of not making it. 
So from a fiduciary perspective, we think our clients are gonna be better off if the world succeeds in doing this. Um, and we believe that the economy will go to net zero, but the question is how fast and, and how much temperature rise we're gonna get in the process. Interesting. We just have to uh, remake the entire <laughs> physical base of the global economy by 2030 and uh, ground all planes. Eric. Paul alluded to this too. And this, and my bottom line is, well, I agree with everything Paul laid out there. What I think is also clear is that this shift is no big secret in financial markets anymore. As we have seen the way markets have treated sustainability and climate risk specifically over the course of the pandemic over the past two years, it's clear that investors are dedicating an increasing amount of incremental capital into, in, into companies and economies that are better prepared for the transition to a low carbon economy. And that's a broad mustering of capital forces across asset owners and asset managers that recognize that there are tremendous, not just risks, but also opportunities for investors to allocate to firms who are getting ahead of this transition, who are gonna benefit from less carbon intensive business streams. And you know, the investment community that, that Paul and I are a part of is focused on developing investment solutions to help investors gain exposure to that transition. But also importantly, recognizing that our clients' outcomes are better if we do manage that transition successfully. So it's not just our fiduciary duty to give you a portfolio of the companies that are going to perform best in this world. It's also in our fiduciary duty to push the global economy toward a successful management of that transition, because that's what leads to better overall outcomes for our investors. Yeah. Well, one more thing I wanted to ask before we move on to um, questions about, uh, you know, the way investors are, are looking at this issue um, in terms of the overall track that you've been talking about and the prospects for um, uh, a, a smoother rather than a bumpier um, transition. This obviously requires an enormous international and as much as possible unified um, international undertaking. And there's been a lot of discussion about China, which obviously is a, a huge emitter, uh, not on a not the most on a per capita basis, um, for sure, but sort of overall. Uh, and people questioning sort of uh, what, what, where they are um, and um, their commitment. Either of you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, what I'd say broadly is, you know, we expect any economy, even those that are emitting more and more intensely today, like China, to benefit from the transition in the sense that um, both in China and in the developed world, we expect economies to continue to pivot toward directing their, you know, policy regimes, but also um, internal capital toward more sustainable sources. And we do see in our in our capital markets assumptions where we lay out our long-term expectations for economies across the globe, we do expect the transition to be a benefit to Chinese capital markets as well as in the developed market as they invest more in improved technologies. But you're right that when it comes to sustainability generally, different large economies are in very different places and we need to be thoughtful about that as investors. Well, you know, one interesting thing about this is China, I, I remember um, China really started focusing on this issue after there was an urban air pollution crisis, you may mm. remember in around 2013, 2012, yeah. 2013. And then um, what, what you're seeing, though, is this is not just about climate change and long term calculus. It is about short term things like air pollution, but also uh, once you really put your shoulder to the wheel to develop these clean technologies, 
they can become cheaper than the dirty alternatives, regardless of whether you've priced in the, the, the carbon or not. So coal, for example, even though China has spent a huge amount of money investing in coal-fired power in the last 20 years, the average Chinese, China's half the world's coal-fired power stations, mm -hmm. and the average age of those is 10 years. Whereas in the US or Europe, our coal-fired power plants are on average 50 or 60 years old. And so they've just spent all this money building these coal-fired power plants. But guess what? Clean energy is now cheaper than coal. And, and by 2025, around 75% of the world's coal plants will actually be uncompetitive uh, on, an, on, on the basis of it would actually be more expensive to keep operating these plants than to build new clean energy and storage to replace them in 75% of cases in, in, in the world, and that's gonna be overwhelmingly the case in China. So if you're looking at this from a Chinese perspective and saying, um, how can I you know, reduce the cost of electricity for ratepayers, deal with climate change, deal with air pollution, in the case of coal to clean energy, that calculus is much, much easier. It's not so easy when you look at heavy industries like steel or cement or chemicals where we don't necessarily have the breakthrough technologies that we need yet. That's interesting on the coal front because the, the narrative has historically been to do things cleaner will cost more. Um, another interesting thing you guys, uh, you, you both touched on, which I thought was interesting, was previously a lot of at time, anything to do with the environment was sort of designated. That's, the, that's a governmental issue. The government can take care of that. But like as a father of like a 17 and 16 year old and the way that I see my kids, true, not that I don't care about the environment, but the extent to which they're growing up caring about it, I, I think there's more uh, societal onus here. And you're talking about corporate and investing, which, which leads, John, do you want to ask a question on ESG? But, thank you. Well, I will. Well, that I think was more I will. positive than I expected. Okay. <laughs> thank you for that gracious <laughs> intro, yeah, yeah. Ronan. Yes. Um, so you got BlackRock, obviously, has a huge um, footprint in the investment world. Um, and I, you know, I take it that you see yourselves as trying to play a leading role um, in, in this um, uh, on this issue, which is commendable. But you're also responding um, to your clients, um, obviously. And so I'm interested to get your perspectives on just how you see the um, uh, the, the grassroots appetite and movement for more and more information um, and understanding and more empowerment on the part of investors in terms of making investment decisions on the basis of these things, because this that obviously is driving a lot of these a, a lot of these initiatives at this point, as well as the governmental um, uh, initiatives uh, too. So. How, what are where what are the different ways and how um, do you see the different ways in which investors are driving this train? That was a bit maybe I'll start, Eric, and then, and then pass over to you. So I think I think uh, what we're getting to the point where and, and we always emphasize this with our clients that we need to be really clear in distinguishing the different reasons that people might want to invest in, in, in ESG or sustain, sustainable uh, strategies. They're not necessarily the same thing <laughs> to everybody, right? So ESG, uh, environmental social governance factors, um, you know, originally were designed to provide non-financial information about companies that is financially material. In other words, Knowing this information or data about companies helps you pick better companies for your portfolio. 
And those companies will be more resilient themselves. They will they will tend to outperform. Uh, uh, so so the theory goes, of ESG. So ESG is really focused about picking better companies. Uh, that that's the core thesis of ESG. If you look at ESG scores um, from from a lot of third party providers that 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 choose to aggregate scores into one number across E S and G. And um, what you'll notice is that those scores might tell you useful things about the company, but they're not necessarily designed to give you information about the impact of that company on the sustainability of a society or the planet. Mm -hmm. So you could have an oil company with an A plus ESG score, mm -hmm. and you could have a, an alternative uh, uh, protein company have a D. <laughs> And, and how does that make sense? Well, the reason it makes sense is it's, it's telling you something about the business practices of that company to help you make better investment decisions and construct better portfolios in terms of risk or return. Now, uh, to your point, a lot of people who think about sustainable investing and wanna put their money, uh, make their money in, in, uh, invested in line with their values might be think of, thinking of something slightly different than that. And, it might be yet another thing to think, okay, well, why do we care about climate risk? Is it because we love polar bears or is it because mm -hmm. we love financial stability? <laughs> um, and, and for us, you know, the core thesis that animates our focus on climate risk is that we think our clients, that the, the macro environment on which the, the global economy is built, um, will, will th that there'll be an erosion in those macroeconomic conditions if climate change runs amok. So it has nothing to do with values or ideology. It's about physics and economics. So you have these three different frameworks. One is a, a values-based framework, which animates a lot of interest in social issues in particular in the S and ESG. You have this kind of physics and economics uh, driver of, of E factors, including climate change. And then you have this original basis for ESG is looking at companies and, and what we want to learn about companies to make better investment decisions. So the first step, if you're looking at this space, is to, is to really separate these things out and ask, what am I interested in as an investor and, and what sorts of strategies are a match for my, my interests? And I would imagine that in terms of uh, trying to satisfy the demand for more information um, along those, you know, three different and in, in those three different um, buckets is, is obviously a challenge, but I'm interested to get your thoughts on um, what kind of track the, the effort is to create more consistent and comparable disclosures, just say at a company level now, because you've got, you have all these different initiatives that are out there. You've got the the UN's principles for responsible investing, you have the SASB initiative, uh, you know, um, former employer of mine, Mary Shapiro is on the, um, that board and has been very heavily involved in that. And that I think has like 77 different sets of standards for different um, industries, uh, which is, but, but I think there's a sense that, uh, that, that at this point, um, those are still, very much all over the map, um, not as objective or concrete as they could be, and that we're a long way away from having something that people could really view as a set of intuitive, um, uh, comparable metrics that people can use to judge these things. That sounded more like yeah, a so statement than a question, but I'm interested to get your questions. It's, a, it's an important. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's an important statement, JR. What you're talking about is really one of the central issues in sustainable investing today, which is that the data and measurement landscape is immature and not nearly as developed as it's going to be only in a few years. And it, you know, it's certainly important to BlackRock that from a public policy perspective, we continue to push for more standardization and more disclosure in the way that companies talk about um, their ESG metrics, their sustainability metrics. But I think what's really important to underscore here is that's not just an effort of public policy. The market forces have an important role to play too. And that's where investors, we think, have a particular opportunity and uh, and an important role to play in helping sort out what data providers, what different kinds of disclosure are most valuable for illuminating across each of the three, you know, channels of sustainable investing that Paul highlighted. Um, our teams are working now to figure out what kinds of climate measurements give us the most information about a company's near-term pathway and what they're likely to do with carbon emissions in the near term and what does that tell us about their return profile. We think it's an important role that the investing industry generally has to play in sorting out some of those data to help push the market toward consensus on what matters. But you're right that the landscape today, while it's much more developed than it was two years ago in terms of the disclosures that are out there, is likely to look very different from where we are in just a couple of years. And 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 do you do you think that we're ultimately is the the objective to create for any particular industry um, a concrete set of a single set of metrics, or is it even possible to do that um, that can be applied across? different companies within that um, industry, or is it more, um, is, is it messier than that? Uh, is there, um, is there no way really to get to that point, or can we even tell you? Well, it's certainly messy, but the way I think about it today is the, the picture of what, what sustainability really means for financial returns in the years to come, the picture of what a sustainable company is, um, is very much like a jigsaw puzzle that's only about 40% done. And what we're working to do is fill in a lot of those missing holes by understanding today the mathematical relationships between some of these data points and you know important outcomes like ESG factors, like a company's own climate profile, and financial outcomes like like how well the company is is rewarded or penalized by markets. And that's what the sustainable research community is really rather obsessed with right now. It's sort of like uh, Eric in our business uh, technical term, but say quite a lot like shit in, shit out as it relates to data, right? And it's it's probably a, a difficult so position. Elegantly put. Yes, yes, yes. I said technical. Yeah. But um, I, I guess I would say, you know, when you're introducing yourself, you were saying you come from the, the, the more typical investor side of things. But I, I think investor skepticism is probably a really good natural trait to have in, in this space. Because I, I again, I, I look at this at a, a peripheral level, but I see lots of companies making lots of commitments and uh, versus real plans or how do you track if, they, if, they're, if they're doing what they say they're doing and that type of thing. Did, did, yeah, I, did I just jump into greenwashing? Didn't mean to do it. I, yes, I you didn't use the term, but I think he sort of sloshed over into greenwashing. But yeah. um, so let's talk about that. Apologies. I thought I thought it was a very elegant transition. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Um, I would say garbage in, garbage out, but that's only because we <laughs> you don't were hear his babies on the line. Um, 
Um, you're absolutely right that greenwashing is a real risk to the development of sustainable investing generally, in that there is certainly a risk in our, in our um, as we explore which companies are sustainable, um, that we might confuse talking about these issues, lip service about these issues, with real demonstrated commitment to, to change. And a great deal of what I do do as a, as a skeptical, as you say, sustainable investor, is try to identify strategies that can separate the talk and the walk, that make sure the talkers are walking the walk as well. And a lot of times that means mixing different data. I'll, I'll give you a great example. We have, um, we have uh, an investment strategy that, that does put a lot of weight on the, the forward-looking targets that, um, that companies um, set with regard, to, uh, with regard to their future carbon pathways, their, their SBTI targets. Um, but we have a built into the strategy, we have some very um, important controls wherein if it seems that the hard data is deviating from those targets in ways that, um, that, that are inconsistent with the company's voice on the matter, we're gonna use that hard data to overwrite the forward-looking commitments pretty quickly. Um, and what we're really focusing on is making sure there's some kind of nexus between the messaging and the substance. And we think that'll be more important to the, the broad enterprise of sustainable investing as the, uh, as the data landscape gets even clearer. Right. I, I mean, I assume that in some, to some extent, you are in a unique position to serve as an intermediary for other people and kind of looking under the hood and trying to make those assessments and trying to make sure that um, uh, there's, um, that, that, that people understand. But from, an, from a standpoint of individual investors that are trying to make those decisions, it's um, a very murky landscape. And I, one of the projects that the um, proposals, the uh, Gary Gensler at the SEC um, has sort of front and center is creating much more concrete disclosure around what companies mean when they say that they, when they are marketing themselves as a whatever it might be, um, right? I mean, if you're, if you call yourself a government bond fund, then there are specific expectations and requirements around what you have to hold in order to call yourself that. Um, there's very little of that area, it feels like, in the ESG space. Well, I think part of the reason is what we discussed earlier, which is th that these terms have become a little bit muddled. And if you are a an investor who wants the very best information about companies and believes that non-financial information can be financially material and you want to sweep it all in and you want to look at factors like board governance and what, how happy, if you think that there's a correlation between um, employee satisfaction and financial performance or water use efficiency and financial performance or uh, you know board diversity and financial performance, you're combing through that ESG data, and you want you may want the ESG version of a of a benchmark fund because you believe that 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 might uh, have better downside protection, as we saw actually recently during downturns that ESG funds performed often better than than their their traditional counterparts because you think these companies are better managed and that they will be more resilient during downturns. That is a different objective than saying I want a material percentage of my wealth uh, to be dedicated to companies whose business model is advancing sustainability, right? 
wind companies, water yeah. companies, uh, waste management companies, beyond you know companies that are developing al uh, alternatives to, uh, to to meat for consumers. That's a different set of objectives, and so it's really important. And of course, labeling and regulation plays a role in helping uh, investors who don't spend all of their time doing this to to clearly understand which funds are are intended for different purposes. Right, and you could have different labels, I suppose, that are used for uh, maybe to communicate both of those purposes, or maybe one or the other. But you you know you have funds that are you know supposed to that are intended to. Um, consist of uh, portfolio companies that are best positioned to, um, you know, navigate the way to uh, um, a, uh, a world that is more um, challenged by these issues. Um, and you have others that are just committed to doing better um, in terms of their own contributions to emissions. But people don't really, per perhaps, certainly from the labels themselves, hard for people to know which is which. Yeah, and there's some really interesting metrics that I think even you know for retail investors will be interesting in the years to come that that uh, we are also in the process of developing, including uh, something called implied temperature rise, which Eric can talk more about. But essentially, is 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 a is a a metric that tells you what how much a company or a portfolio of issuers is contributing to global warming expressed as a temperature. Right, so if 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 that co that company and it's a forward-looking metric, it's not just saying, okay, the emissions of company X were Y, were 100 million tons of CO2 last year. Great, you can find that information out. What are you going to do with it? Um, this this metric, implied temperature uh, rise, is forward-looking and it's asking, okay, like looking forward at a company's plans, not just its commitments, but its capital plans. Um, how fast is it going to be reducing its carbon intensity uh, over time? And is it going to be outperforming its peers or underperforming? And is, is its reduction in, in, in carbon emissions in line with the temperature goals that society has set or not? And if like every company in the world did what this company did, how much global warming would we end up with? And then investors can use that data to compare different companies and they that, that have otherwise similar characteristics from an investment point of view and say, okay, I'd like the one that has a lower temperature score, please. They can compare entire portfolios. Uh, and it's a really exciting, uh, it's a really exciting development. Yeah, that does sound, and it sounds like it's the kind of information, the sort of metrics that, um, uh, you know, individual investors in particular um, could, could, would really welcome. I mean, we've been doing some of the, you know, uh, Yesterday's podcast um, sort of focused on the the Reddit crowd, the rise of you know individual investors who were sort of taking trying to take control of their destiny through various new retail trading platforms, which is obviously a very different focus. But it's a but but it's another iteration of this sense that a whole new generation of investors are looking to find ways where they can empower themselves and make independent judgments um, based on whatever sources of information they can find and, and whatever technology can provide them. So those kinds of, uh, so there's, I would think there's a big need to fill in terms of providing that kind of information for people. I think it's a particularly interesting challenge as applied to sustainability, because as Paul outlined up front, sustainability is multidimensional. 
one thing that we we haven't hit on yet is if you if you kind of just look at the basic e s and g measurements as as they're kind of done by consensus in the market now you tend to see pretty low correlations across companies on their es and g scores some of the some of the greenest e companies aren't necessarily the highest scoring s companies for example and even a, a nuanced forward looking metric like implied temperature rise that paul just laid out you know, might not, it, it isn't going to give you that kind of full sustainable picture. And what we need to push for is a way to, to have retail investors in a way that's clear and specifically and, and um, you know, communicated in a standard way, be able to see those multidimensional definitions of sustainability, because it's too complicated to summarize in one. And, and do you think that that, yeah, it's not. But I, so, do you think that um, do we need to rely on the government to do that, um, or is it a case of uh, in industry groups developing best practices that are sort of generally accepted? Typically, if you have this sort of concern about uh, disclosures sort of all over the map and people who were less scrupulous, perhaps sort of uh, marketing themselves in a way that doesn't reflect a word, you sort of expect the government to. Um, to step in and deal with that. Um, what, what do you think the government's role is in, in, in addressing those issues? Well, regulation and policymakers certainly have a role to play in pushing for these standards. And, and, and you know, BlackRock engages with them regularly to help, you know, share some of our own thinking about how, um, you know, how those metrics um, are being developed in-house. Um, but I also think market forces have an important role to play too um, by illustrating some of the different return profiles that some of these different metrics might might lead to. Um, but you know, clarity in and standard language is is going to be really important, and and we continue to push for that. Before we move on, Sarah, I see some questions have come in. I was just wondering if there was was any question. We do have a couple of questions, um, actually, both on carbon credit investing. Um, and the carbon credit market. Maybe if you could start by explaining to people who don't know what that is a little bit more about it and then um, your thoughts on it and how the regulatory environment surrounding that may change in the future. Sure, I'll, I'll take a crack at this. So the idea of carbon credits arises from the fact that uh, the climate problem and the emissions problem is takes place in a single atmosphere, right? So a, a unit of a ton of emissions here is actually the same as a ton of emissions anywhere. And also a ton of avoided emissions in one place is the same as a ton of avoided emissions everywhere. So this is not a localized problem like local air pollution where uh, you can't substitute uh, you know, somebody who's, who's asthmatic who needs help in, in Beijing is not gonna be benefited from, from a, a, an electric bus in, uh, you know, in, in Sao Paulo. In, in, the, in terms of climate, you can kind of take advantage of the fact that we're dealing with one atmosphere and, um, and then find where is the cheapest, what's the cheapest way to reduce a unit of emissions if you wanna pay for that? Is it actually inside the fence of your factory, for example, or are there ways to, uh, rigorous ways to document and calculate and demonstrate that you can reduce a ton of emissions somewhere else um, which has the same effect on climate change and the same effect on the atmosphere, um, but in fact might be cheaper to do somewhere else. And this is the this is one of the bases of emissions trading and carbon credits are a way to do a project somewhere that you can document and demonstrate uh, uh, and quantify the reduction in emissions that a project causes 
Simplest example being, you know, planting some trees and then measuring the growth of those trees and the uptake of, of carbon into the body of the tree and saying, look, I have caused a unit of carbon to be sequestered in this tree or these trees. And, um, and so even though I did not reduce the unit of emission somewhere else, I have done it effectively somewhere else. So that's, that's what a carbon credit is. And back in the day, when we uh, were only talking about some countries like wealthy countries reducing their emissions under uh, treaties like the Kyoto Protocol, there was a big hunt in the world for projects to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in emerging markets. I used to do that for a living. That is why I was in industrial towns in China trying to find ways to reduce chemical plant emissions and, and uh, cement plant emissions because you could do that, document the, the action you'd taken in China and then import that carbon credit and then apply it to the obligation that say a European company had in a cap and trade uh, system, system in Europe. And you know, as more and more of the world takes on these net zero targets, there's more and more interest in finding cost-effective ways to meet those targets. But when more and more of the economy is covered by targets, the hunting ground for offsets also or credit starts to go to starts <laughs> yeah. to shrink because you've got to find those in places which don't have their own targets. <laughs> and uh, it's a good thing that right. more and more you know, jurisdictions and more and more companies have the targets. So I would say that you know, carbon credits, the demand is up, the prices are up, and that's understandable because uh, we're in this period where more and more companies are looking for ways to get to net zero faster. And they're trying to do the right thing by saying, hey, I can go buy a, a credit that I, I can feel good about the fact that my company is now net zero. That's good. There's there's absolutely ways to do that that we consider rigorous at BlackRock. Um, but over time, uh, it's not it's not the basis of a long term strategy for a major industrial co company, right? So you can't say, oh, I have a hundred million tons of emissions, and I'm just going to continue doing things just the way I'm doing them, and I'm just going to buy offsets forever to to make yeah. up for it. Yeah, you can't trade your way yeah. out of the problem. Yeah. Very good explanation. <laughs> it, it, actually, was. It, it was. It really was. Now I, I feel guilty uh, transitioning into our question of questions. Well, well, did, does Sarah have another question? I'm, I'm not sure. I thought. We just got another question. So, off the press. Um, oh, I see. Mm -hmm. it just coming off, yeah. Um, what's the impact of low ESG score companies on their cost of credit and access to capital markets? um eg stranded assets is that something mm -hmm. that you can see yeah an important question in many respects it's the it's the other end of the uh of the opportunities based investment logic we laid out earlier which is at, at the end of the day and blackrock's written an awful lot about this we think sustainable companies generally are going to outperform over the years to come because there's going to be this tectonic shift of capital into sustainability driven by the evolving dimensions of changing values among investors and, and the, the clarity with which investors are perceiving some of these challenges. The flip side of that is that we do think companies that are broadly perceived as being less sustainable, whether it's because they have lower scores today or as that data landscape continues to mature and we get a clearer picture of who's who here, um, you know, they, that they appear to be you know, moving further away from, from good pathways, 
those companies are going to see um, less incremental capital um, on both the equity and debt side as investor preferences evolve. And we're already seeing in the past couple of years an increase in the cost of capital of some of those companies um, that are, are widely perceived as being less sustainable today. And that's being offset by a lower cost of capital among those that are displaying positive sustainability attributes. And this actually connects us back to a point Rona made up front, which is we used to think about this as it's cheaper to do cleaner, it's sorry, it's more expensive to do mm. cleaner things, mm. right? That's the way we used to think about this. But this tectonic shift of capital is changing that because companies doing cleaner projects, companies that are investing in more sustainable income streams are going to be able to borrow capital to do those projects more cheaply. We're already seeing evidence of this in the past couple of years, and we think it's got a lot more room to run. And obviously, the public sector can help with that, too, by um, easing access to capital for those kinds of projects uh, as well, which is importantly, it's a partnership. They're, they're clearly both roles to play here. So that all being said, what's your favorite Wall Street? <laughs> now, as we elegantly slide into our... It's, it's, it's our ending question. We ask everybody, and we, we've gotten some interesting ones, but we, we ask every guest to tell us what their favorite Wall Street movie was, is, and why, please. Well, I when I came to BlackRock, I was shocked to find that it was somewhat different than The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, <laughs> which definitely just yeah, I mean, i'm sure you've gotten that answer 50 percent of the time but it is a great movie and it's a great mm -hmm. story and uh it is it is nothing nothing like our day-to-day -day reality right right eric yeah it's definitely a lot more than somewhat different paul i think that's that's fair to say <laughs> <laughs> Uh, look, my answer, you, our bottom line in this in this conversation has been the climate risk is investment risk, right? So I, I think my, my favorite Wall Street movie is going to be my favorite climate change movie. So I'm going with Day After Tomorrow. Maybe not widely appreciated as a Wall Street movie, oh, but, but very important to the no, story here. I, I think. bet that's very creative. I think that's a very, we, we definitely give you credit for that one. It's the first time anybody's used that one. Uh -huh. Not that Paul's answer is a bad one, because that's what 50% of people do tell us. So there's something in the data, right? Garbage in, exactly. garbage out, Eric. Exactly. That's what you got to say going forward. And then we, 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 all, we, we appreciate guests coming on, but we, we never let you leave without nothing. So what do we have for our guests today, John Ramsey? <laughs> we have this lovely, very comfortable pair of IEXX. Actually, boxes and lines socks. Boxes and lines socks. They're very comfortable and you actually wear them. And then we have our marine layer hoodies, which are actually, I promise, sustainably sourced. Mm -hmm. And we will send these to you as well. But you'll certainly tell us if they're not, and then we'll feel very <laughs> yeah. embarrassed. And last um, but not least, we have our IEX hats. So we, mm -hmm. we appreciate you joining. Wear them loud, wear them proud. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. Um, thank you so much. A terribly important topic. And um, you guys have uh, been uh, have been terrific in, um, I think, answering a lot of questions that people have. And I'm so glad that you came on. And you forced me to do homework beforehand. I, I know, which, which was... is frankly, nobody, I don't think anybody that's happened with anybody else has come Well, Rona, point, you, so. you can go talk to your 17-year-old now. And uh, I know she might about, be impressed about for ESG scores. And I'm sure that'll solve, that'll solve the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks nice. for having us. Thanks so much for having us. Very, very much God bless. and 
opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.